Thank you. Actually, um, I pronounce my last name Cavell, but literally, you can say it any way you want, because no matter how you say it, somebody related to me pronounces it that way, literally. I've you know, met lots of relatives, and they all say it differently. When I was a, when I was a child, that was very confusing. So um, yes, I'm from a Desert Springs Bible Church, so if I want to sound like the Apostle Paul, I can say greetings from Desert Springs Bible Church. I know you've had a few of our pastors there uh, here. I think uh, Matt Hawkins has been here, and Caleb Campbell has been here, and Rick Eford has been here. And so now I'm here, and I guess, I don't know if that's an agenda to try to cycle through in a year, but apparently that's what we're doing. So um, a little bit about me. Uh, I, uh, like I said, I, yeah, I'm one of the pastors over at Desert Springs. Um, I didn't, my wife is not here with me today, but uh, I've been happily married for uh, 34 years this July. So it can be done. Hang in there. And uh, I've got two adult children. Uh, my son is 30 and my daughter is 28. And uh, my son has also given, uh, given us a daughter-in-law and two grandchildren. So if you're interested, I have a few hundred pictures on my phone that I would be happy to share with you. So my son gave me two grandchildren uh, about a year ago. My daughter gave me a kidney. So they both kind of are competing to see who can be the favored kid, you know. And they're, now they're kind of neck and neck, as it were. Um, okay, so... Uh, this passage that we're in this morning, I'm going to weave in a little bit of my story. I noticed, now how many of you grew up going to church? Okay, I can tell, and one of the ways I can tell is because most of the empty seats are in the front. Did you notice that? You know, because no one, nobody wants to sit, people like to sit toward the back. I don't know, it's easy escape, easier to get to the bathroom. Jesus is up here, and so, you know, whatever it's going to take, but that's okay. Um, uh, I personally did not grow up in church. I didn't, now, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but that's just because I'm old, and so I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't even know Jesus, I mean, Easter was about Jesus, literally, until I was about 19 or 20, and so I came uh, into a relationship with God, a blank slate, uh, kind of like um, even though I was a young adult, I was kind of like the first people that we encounter uh, in this passage. So the first people that we encounter in this passage in Mark chapter 10 are the children. It says, uh, starting in verse 13, that they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So they're doing that because it, it was often believed that a quote-unquote, holy man or a spiritual man or a teacher or a rabbi who is special uh, if, they, if you just make some kind of contact with them, even just to touch their clothing, that there would be some kind of transference of spiritual power or spiritual blessing. And so they're bringing children to Jesus um, that he would bless them. However, it says, uh, but when, the, when Jesus saw it, I'm sorry, then it says that Jesus would touch them and then the disciples rebuked them. The disciples were, not the children, but the people bringing the children. Because back in this culture, unfortunately, children were basically, you know, better seen and not heard. And really, to some people, it was better not either one. Um, they were not valued. Uh, they didn't have any kind of social worth or status or value in that culture. Some of that may have been attributed to a high infant mortality rate. 
because a lot of people were almost, well, don't get too attached because you don't know how long they're going to be with you. Uh, in the non-Jewish culture, uh, they would often dispose of children that they didn't want, even especially female children. And so it was, a, it was a harsh world for children to be brought into. But verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, indignant there is another word for ticked. <laughs> he wasn't happy about it. He was indignant and he said to these disciples, his followers, he said, wait, 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 let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Then he says in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, here's these people, these children, but really I think this applies to almost anybody who comes to Christ without any kind of sort of self-perception of power or that they're bringing something to the party. You know, that they're coming to Jesus going, well, Jesus is lucky to have me. I remember even having a conversation with somebody who said God was really lucky to have him. Yeah, he said that, and I'm listening. He goes, well, I feel like God's really lucky to have me. And so I just started doing this a little bit. No, keep talking, keep talking. I'm just going to stand a little farther away because I'm not sure what's going to happen to you. But yet here are people bringing children to Jesus, children who really don't know what he's all about and don't necessarily understand what he's all about. When I first realized that maybe Christ was what I was looking for in my life, uh, it was because of some people that I knew that I was hanging out with. And I remember it occurred to me on a Saturday afternoon, these people have a reason to live. Not just to be alive, but they had things that they believed that guided their decisions and guided their lifestyle and made them the type of people they were. And I thought to myself, I don't have that. And so I got invited to this gathering and they were praying toward the end. And so I went to my friend afterward and I said, his name was Rich. And I said, well, Rich, I guess I should tell you that I think I prayed or something. And he goes, well, did you pray the sinner's prayer? I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, I don't know. I just, I think I prayed or something. He goes, well, did you receive Christ? I don't know. I think I prayed or something. That's, that's all I know. He goes, well, and then he started listing off a few things. And I said, look, I don't know what the, I don't know what I just did. <laughs> There's children in the room. I don't know what I just did, but I think I prayed or something. And so he then took me to a pastor who sat there and started explaining a bunch of stuff. And I guess he never took that interpersonal communication class where they say when you're explaining something to somebody, it's always good to pause and go, does what I'm saying make sense? <laughs> and maybe tell me about Because I had no idea what he was saying. You know, I learned later, I realized later on when I heard somebody doing the whole gospel explanation with, with the gulf and the bridge and you're here and God's here and you can't get across and Jesus is the bridge. And I go, oh, you know what? That's what that dude was telling me back there. <laughs> I was just trying to be polite and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. I had no idea. So he goes, well, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to start reading the Bible. So he gave me a King James Bible. And he said, start reading it, Matthew, and pay attention to the words in red. Off you go. 
And so off I went. And I uh, started trying to read it. Didn't make a lot of sense. You know, I just the language was very unfamiliar to me. So I put that on a shelf and didn't read it again. However, now at that time, I thought, well, maybe this Jesus thing isn't for me. Because I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't, it's not coming to me. It's, I don't look like those friends of mine that are Christians. I'm not acting like them. And so I just thought, well, you know, maybe not. And so it's sometimes, and that's what this chair here represents. This represents people that come to Jesus and either they're just checking it out. They're just trying to figure it out. They're, they don't know all the answers. They don't know if they prayed or not <laughs> or something. And that's where I was in the beginning. And that's where these little kids are that were brought to Jesus. But what does Jesus do? His disciples were trying to, you know, get him out of the way. They're distracting. They're making noise. They get in the way, you know. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let him in. Let him in. Let him in. And so Jesus kneels down and pulls him in. And it puts his arms around him. And he says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. And so I don't know where all of you were at, but maybe you're kind of in that same type of spot. Or maybe you were recently where you're really interested in the Jesus thing. And maybe it is for you. But there just seems like so much you don't know. And you know people that maybe you know somebody who who is a Christian, whatever that means to different people, um, and they seem to have it all together. And just so you know, uh, those of you who do have a relationship with God and who have been walking with God, to someone who is like where I was at, you look like you have it all together to them. They think you are so dialed in. They think you have just got this nailed down, that you are, you know, you're at your best all day, every day, top to bottom, side to side. They look at you and go, man, I wish I could believe like that, just so you know. I'm not trying to put a lot of pressure on you, but that might put some pressure on you. Um, but just so you know, I was there. I was one of those people looking at people like you, or I'd walk into a church like this and see people like y'all and go, ah, oh, man, those people have all got it together. I'm, all, I'm totally messed up. Those people have got it all together. And so that's kind of like the people that, that they were bringing to Jesus. And even though they're represented by children in this story, maybe that's you. Or maybe that was you at one point. But I think it also reinforces the fact that we don't ever want to minimize the importance of ministries to children. Sometimes we kind of think, oh, well, you know, the kids go to Sunday school and, they're bas and basically the purpose of Sunday school is to take care of the kids so mom and dad can go to church and not be distracted. But I can tell you I've been doing this long enough and I've sat with enough people who were coming back to God. I tried all sorts of things that didn't work. And I'd say, you know, I'm interested. Why is it that you think Jesus is what you need? And they said, well... It's what I know. Because when I was a little kid, this is what I learned. And I, when I got older, I shoved it back to the back of the list, the back of my mind, and I tried everything else. And so now I'm coming back to that. So don't ever underestimate the value of that foundation that can be laid in a child's life. Because you never know where they're going to be 20 years from now, 
30 years from now, 40 years from now. And these are the things that will still be there. They'll still be there. So it says in verse 16, Jesus took the children in his arms. He took the children in his arms and he's laying his hands on them and he blessed them. And this was something that throughout the scriptures you see pictures of godly people laying their hands on someone else to confer some kind of blessing. And Jesus wouldn't be doing this with the children if they weren't important, if there wasn't value in doing so. He wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't worth it, if it didn't mean something. And so he does it. And so in the next part of the story, we see the grown-up. And it says in verse 17, And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to, eternal, to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting, he calls him good teacher because that wasn't a formal uh, address. And so this man has some sincerity. He really does believe there is something special about Jesus. He's kneeling on the ground, which a man wouldn't do in that culture, just as a way of being polite. And he might have called him teacher, didaskalos in Greek. He might have called him that, but he wouldn't call him good teacher unless he was meaning some kind of sincere um, way of addressing him with respect or piety. And so Jesus said, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so now you're in this series called, Who Do You Say That I Am? And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Why are you calling, and the emphasis is on the word me, why, is he, why are you calling me good? No one's good ultimately but God alone. And so Jesus is kind of teeing up something for this guy. He doesn't really bite on it. But he's giving him the opportunity to see that Jesus is different. So something I, wanna, I want you to kind of give me some feedback here. This question, who do you say that I am? I'm not looking for a specific answer, but you've been in the series for a few weeks now. You're all the way into chapter 10 of Mark. So who do you say that Jesus is? What are some of the things that you've learned? or What are you seeing in this series? Who is he? Just yell it out. Messiah, living God. Sorry? Lord, yeah. Anything else? Father, Father good. Keep going. Good. Teacher. Savior. God. Excellent. Good. And so in a way, Jesus is kind of asking that question. Why do you call me good? Because he said, no one is good except God alone. And so he's teeing up that opportunity to say, well, am I God? Am I God in human flesh? And, you know, whether the man gets it or not, we don't really know. He might get it, but he might be a little afraid to say something like that because that was a powerful statement. Or it might have just blown right by him and he didn't notice. And so Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus gives him six of the ten commandments, except one of them is a little sideways, you know. He said, do not defraud instead of saying do not covet, which is number 10. He didn't say do not covet. But it's interesting because Jesus often linked certain, I don't know, motivations to some of the commandments. You know, he said, don't commit adultery, but, you know, 
what's going on in your mind may be just as bad as actually committing adultery. Maybe you never committed murder, but maybe your hatred for another person is the equivalent of that. And so instead of saying, do not covet, Jesus says, well, do not defraud. Because what's the outgrowth of coveting? If I want something bad enough of yours, maybe I'll figure out a way to manipulate you into giving it to me. And what's interesting is that Jesus lists these commandments that are all external. All of these commandments that he says here are things that could be observed of somebody in the context of a relationship. And so he says, don't do those things. And the man said to him, well, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So he's grown up in this. He's the grown up. He knows what he's doing. He's religious. He's sincere. And so Jesus said, well, you know what? You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor so that you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And it says in verse 22, Well, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, often, this man is portrayed negatively. You know, that Jesus said, okay, well, you're very religious. You're doing everything that you were taught to do, and he is. Remember, you know, this is all they know is the commandments. And he's keeping them. And he says, I've done these. I, I'm doing this. I'm living this out. And Jesus says, okay, let me push you back a little bit. Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And so it's easy for people like in our position to go, well, he obviously was very materialistic and self-centered because, you know, he's very religious, but then Jesus says, sell everything you have and give, give it to the poor. But we don't do that. I mean, if I sold everything I have, I couldn't have gotten here this morning. I mean, I would have had to take a lift, you know, but that's kind of expensive sometimes. But if I sold everything I have, then I wouldn't have my cell phone, so I couldn't have gotten a lift. And so a lot of times we can be a little critical, but you got to also realize that Jesus often uses hyperbole or exaggeration for the sake of emphasis to make a point. You know, he says things like, well, hey, if you sin with your right hand, then chop it off. Do we really think he meant we should dismember ourselves? He said, if you sin with your eye, pluck it out. I don't think, did he really mean that? Did he really say you must hate your father and mother in order to follow me? And I've known people who have said, I, I like that one. <laughs> because I don't really like my parents. But does he really mean we're supposed to hate somebody else? Pluck our eyes out. Cut our hands off. Now I know people who have, who have divested themselves of many things. But did Jesus mean sell everything you have? Everything you have? Or did he just mean the things that are holding you back? The things that are occupying your passion? The things that, that occupy your priorities? And the man went away because he went away challenged. He probably thought, well, I don't know. What am I supposed to do with that? When he says sell, sell everything, does that mean everything I have? Or does it mean, well, you know, I know some people where they said, well, they sold everything and they went to the mission field. Well, they didn't sell every single item they owned, but pretty much a lot. <laughs> and so you can imagine the confusion in his heart and his mind. Well, what am I, how do I do this? 
that wasn't going to be an easy question to answer, like, did you keep the commands? Because, yeah, you could say, I do. Anyone who knows me knows that I do. I keep the commands. I've been doing that since I was young. And so we get to the next section, and that's where I call the upside down. So this is where Jesus then kind of takes everybody who, from the child, from the person coming to Christ, who has no idea what they're getting into, doesn't know anything about it, but just knows somehow, Jesus, is, I think Jesus is my answer. That's where I was one day. All the way to here where, okay, I could sort of maybe put myself in that chair. I've been at this for a while. I have a degree. I've been a pastor for a long time. You know, I suppose I'm supposed to be sitting in this chair. I'm supposed to be knowing what I'm doing. Or somewhere in between. And so Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, the ones that follow him, the ones that are listening, and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They hadn't heard words like these before. And Jesus said to him again, them again, children, how difficult it is, in, it is to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of theories as to what he actually meant. Some people say, well, it was talking about this trade route. Some people say it was talking about a gate into the temple that actually wasn't, didn't even exist until medieval times. Um, but I think that Jesus, you could take it at face value because, again, he's continuing this use of hyperbole to make a point. You know, well, there's no way you're going to get a camel through the eye of a needle, clearly. And so he's not actually saying, well, you could do it, but it's hard. Essentially, he's saying that if you are, the more that you're holding on to, the more that you're clinging to as some sort of source of life or source of peace or source of identity, the more that we cling to, that we wrap ourselves around that isn't God, the harder it is to experience even today what it means to be living in this spiritual reality called the kingdom of God. In verse 26, and they were astonished, exceedingly astonished, and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, he looked at them and said, you know, with man, it's impossible. It's under your own power, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And so if we're hoping to kind of say to God, well, you know what? God's lucky to have me. I've, I keep the commands, quote unquote. I'm religious. I'm devoted. I give. I serve. I show up. And those are all great things to be doing. And watching you at a distance, probably most people would assume that, hey, they're dialed in. They're really, they're really convinced about this. And you probably are really convinced about this. But when you do have to have those moments of examining your own heart, what is it that tells you that you have this relationship with God, that you're in Christ? Is it because of the things you do? Or is it because God has done something in your life that you could never do for yourself? Something that on a human level is impossible. But with God, it's possible. Once in a while, someone will ask me, well, so why is it that you believe all this stuff? 
And I suppose I could get into some of the intellectual arguments and we could talk about Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But you know what? No one cares. It's fun to talk about, but most people don't care. And if somebody asked me, why do I believe all this? I'd say, because God changed my life. God did something in me that I could not do in myself. Way back in the 80s, Christian bookstores sold these 3D, they looked like they were chrome outlines of fish that you could put on your car. And so I put one on the taillight lens of my car. And these things, they probably don't sell them anymore because they were really, really well made, very, very sticky. And so I was going through a really tough time and really questioning whether or not I really believed this because if I really believed this, why did I live the way I lived? And so I went outside and I was going to take that thing off my car because I didn't want people looking at, seeing me and thinking, oh, he must be a Christ follower when I felt that badly about how, I was, how well I was following Christ. And I started trying to take it off the taillight lens of my car and it would not come off. And I realized that if I really did whatever it was going to take to take this thing off, it was probably going to crack the taillight lens, and then I was going to have to replace that, and that was going to be expensive. So what I did is I prayed. And this was my prayer of rededication. All right, God, I'm going to give it a week. And if my life isn't any different in a week, this thing's coming off one way or the other. Amen. <laughs> I, probably one of the most sincere prayers I ever prayed. You know, I can't remember how that week went, but I didn't ever take it off. So it must have gotten better. But I was kind of at that point where it's like, I cannot do this. I cannot do this myself. And I can imagine that if I had to think about what God was probably saying back to me, it was something to the effect of, yeah, you're, starting, you're finally starting to get it. You're finally starting to get it. You cannot do this. So let me. So let me. And in the passage, Peter says, you know, we've left everything to follow you. And so Jesus said, well, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And he listed again houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so what he's saying is, you know what? Yeah, you're leaving a lot, but you'd have no idea what's coming. You know, Peter says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. And he's probably saying, so we're totally dialed in. And Jesus doesn't choose that moment to tell him, but another time he does. And Peter, you have no idea what you're saying. Peter doesn't realize that Jesus is going to be crucified, that he's going to deny even, know, deny even knows Jesus three times, but yet then Jesus is going to raise him back up, and Peter will become one of the most influential founders of the body of Christ. Peter says, we left everything to follow you, and he's, like, and he has, and he, and he's sincere, but he has no idea what's coming. But Jesus says, you don't even see it the way I see it. We see things in a very linear fashion. We think of first and next. And here we are and something happened before and something's going to happen next. But Jesus doesn't even look at it that way. And so the first will be last. The last will be first because everybody's the same. And it's not about who comes in first or who comes in last or who comes before or after. It's a completely different upside down way of looking at things 
Because what we perceive as being right side up, like this cup, what if right side up to us is upside down to us? And actually upside down to God is what's right side up to God. What's upside down to us is right side up to God. And what's right side up to us is actually upside down to God. And the way we think things ought to be and the way we think we're doing really well and what is success to us, what if God says, yeah, that's nice in your life, in your world, but doesn't really mean much to me. And so what are the things that really hold us back from following Christ? What are the things that we are wrapped around that holds us back? I asked you earlier, who does Jesus say that he is? God, Lord, Redeemer, Forgiver, Savior. I want to give you a few questions you can take home with you this week. If Jesus is all those things, if he is Redeemer, Savior, Forgiver, God in human flesh, and everything else that he claimed to be, if he is all those things, What's important to God? What's one thing that's important to God that needs to be more important to you? Can you think of one thing, and I'm not, don't raise your hand, don't shout it out, please. Can you think of one thing that's important to God that ought to be more important to you? Maybe it has some importance in your life But if Jesus were going to appear physically right here and say, yeah, it's good that it has value to you, but that should be way more important. And then maybe you, what might help is if you take that question and invert it. What's something that's unimportant to God that is way too important to you? Maybe there's a grudge or an anger towards somebody that you still carry. And that's very important to you. You think about it a lot. Every day, every week, every month. It doesn't take much to remind you of it. And what if God is saying, you are so wrapped around the axle on that issue and you got to let it go. It's not worth allowing to be a driving force in your life. What's something that's really important to you that's really not important to God? And God's saying, you're going to have to let that go. You're not going to find the peace that you're looking for until you let that go. Maybe it's an image thing. Maybe it's a revenge thing. Maybe it's an anger thing. And one more question. Who's one person this week that you could treat as Jesus would? Maybe it's somebody who lives in the same home that you live in. Maybe it's somebody who works under the same roof that you work under. Maybe it's somebody that you encounter. Maybe it's somebody who stands behind a counter that you go to to buy something. And the way that you treat them when they're not moving fast enough or they make a mistake and you're simon mocha latte, half calf, hot whip, whatever, 
I'm not a coffee drinker, sorry. I'm not mocking those who are. A little bit, I am. But I've stood in line and seen people treat those behind the counter horribly. Because you should be so much faster and so much better at your job for the few cents that I'm giving you. Who's somebody this week that you could treat as Jesus would? So three questions to take with you. What's one thing that's important to God that could be more important to you? If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is all of those things that you told me that he is, and I agree with you that he is, if he is all those things, what's something that's important to God that could be less important to you? What's something that is unimportant to God but is too important to you? I think I said the first one wrong, didn't I? What's something that's important to God that needs to be more important to you? What's something that's unimportant to God that needs to be less important to you? And who's one person this week that you could treat as Jesus would, whom you don't normally? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, before these people, I confess I'm guilty in many of these areas. There are times when I am holding on way too tightly to things that, that I need to let go of. God, there's times when I am tempted to measure my spirituality, as it were, by the things that I do or the things that I have done. God, there are times when things that are important to you are not important to me. There are times when things that are unimportant to you are too important to me. And there are times when I have the opportunity to treat someone as Jesus would, and I don't. And so God, thank you for each person here. Thank you for your grace and mercy. God, thank you for your love and forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you are always after a higher good in our life to bring us closer to you, to bring us more like you, to make what's important to you more important to us, to make what's unimportant to you less important to us, and that we would treat others as you would. In Jesus' name, amen.